and I'll come to part four of the Diet of Worms. <clears throat> Strange name, but it simply refers to a meeting that took place in the town of Worms during the time of the early Reformation, uh, at which Martin Luther was called to stand before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and give an account of his writings. The Pope had already condemned Luther. He was surrounded on every side by ferocious enemies who... Uh, were determined to see him killed, to never arrive in Worms, or if he arrived there, to be destroyed uh, by the Diet itself. <clears throat> now, uh, there are certain uh, episodes in church history which seem to be pivotal, where all the forces of darkness and all the powers of Satan are, are poured out on one particular um, thing. And it seems as though the whole history of salvation uh, depends upon that thing. So, for example, we have the uh, situation where Esther and uh, Queen Esther and uh, Mordecai and the Jewish people were set for destruction in the time uh, in the time of the Book of Esther. There, and uh, if Haman had had his way and the Jewish people had been destroyed, they would never have brought forth the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. So, all Satan's attacks were against the Jews at that time. Another example would be the um, the saving of the um, of Rahab on the walls of Jericho in her house when she put a, a scarlet um, uh, tie in the window to see that, ensure that her, her and her household were protected. Now the thing about that is that Rahab was uh, even incorporated into the um, into the line of the Lord Jesus Christ, showing the grace of God and the uh, the power of His salvation. So Satan's attacks against um, the, the cause of Christ then, if, if she had died, then uh, he could have wiped out that line that would have led to the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, even when the Lord Jesus Christ was born, all the efforts of um, Herod the king to kill all the children from two years old and, and below um, were designed to wipe out uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, at every single one of these points all Satan put all his resources all his power into the destruction of, of the bloodline of the Lord Jesus himself of the Jewish people and it's as though everything pivoted upon one episode and one thing yet nothing could be um, determined against the cause of Christ not God's purposes could not be thwarted well I want to argue that with Martin Luther and the Diet of Worms, we have an incident in post-New Testament church history which is of such stupendous importance that pretty much, I think, Satan put all his forces into attacking Luther at the Diet of Worms, and that if Luther had either been killed or if Luther had retracted and recanted his position as a reformer, as a teacher of the great Reformation doctrine, uh, justification by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, then probably I wouldn't be reading this and nobody would be listening to it. That that would have been the end of the Reformation. We wouldn't have the Bible in our own in our hands today, in our own languages. We wouldn't um, have preachers of the gospel because the Reformation would have failed. So we mustn't underestimate the significance of the Diet of Worms. Now God is sovereign and he could have um, continued his work some other way. But it was God's purpose that he would use Martin Luther in that capacity at that time. This was no small battle. Luther did not know what was going to happen. And we, we find him a man of astonishing courage, strengthened by the Lord. Even though he had a, a safe passage from the Roman emperor, there were people who were still trying to kill him, still trying to um, trick him into um, going outside the uh, the bounds of the safe passage so that they could have free reign to kill him without fear of their own lives. <clears throat> 
And Luther uh, continues on his journey, um, a man who is determined to do what is right before God, to honour God and to stand up for the truth. This is a stupendous story. It's got a, a strange title, The Diet of Worms, but in fact it is a, a, a gargantuan episode in church history and one which we all do well to learn about. So may the Lord bless us reading of this book. Now this is, of course, um, J.H. Moll de Bignier's book on the Diet of Worms. <clears throat> it's part of a larger work, The Reformation in the 16th Century by J.H. Moll de Bignier. And this is chapter 8 of that book, but it's the fourth episode of our, um, our little um, summary of the Diet of Worms, because we're not reading all the chapters. If you want to read all of it, and it's worth reading a whole lot, then buy de Bignier's History of the Reformation in the 16th Century, which you can get for a, a, a paltry sum of, um, of Kindle. Uh, it's amazing how these great works have become available at such um, low prices now. And how many how many Christians are aware of the history of the Reformation? And yet this is just so, so key. Um, we, we, as I say, we have two-dimensional view of the Christian faith. The churches are as they've always been. Um, and yet that's not true. We all have a history. We have a history to the people that, uh, that led us to Christ. And they have a history of the people that led them to Christ. And it goes all the way back. Um, to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and then back through the Old Testament, right back to uh, the beginning of creation, that God um, has worked graciously in his saving history throughout the whole of history, and will do so until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So this is, uh, this is uh, part four of the Diet of Worms, and the subtitles for this chapter are <clears throat> Entry into Worms, Chant for the Dead, Council Held by Charles V, that's the Emperor, Capito and the Temporizers, Concourse around Luther, citation, Hutton to Luther, proceeds to the Diet, saying of Frunsberg, imposing assembly, the Chancellor's address, Luther's reply, his wisdom, saying of Charles V, alarm, triumph, Luther's firmness, insults from the Spaniards, counsel, Luther's trouble and prayer, might of the Reformation, Luther's oath to Scripture, the court of the Diet, Luther's address, Three kinds of writings. He demands proof of his error, solemn warnings. He repeats his address in Latin. Here I am. I can do I can't do otherwise. The weakness of God. New attempt. At length, on the morning of the sixteenth of April, Luther perceived the walls of the ancient city. All were looking for him, and there was only one thought in worms. The young noblemen Bernard of Hirschfield and Albert of Linden, Lindenau, with six cavaliers and other gentlemen in the suite of the princes to the number of a hundred. If we may believe Pallavicini, unable to restrain their impatience, galloped to meet him and surrounded him in order to escort him at the moment of his entry. He approached, before him pranced the imperial herald, decked in all the insignia of his office. Next came Luther in his humble carriage. Jonas followed on horseback, surrounded by the cavaliers. A large crowd was waiting in front of the gates. It was near midday when he passed those walls which so many persons had foretold him he would never leave. Remember that in the previous um, chapter on his journey he had been told to stay away, but he had said if there were as many devils in worms as there were tiles on the rooftops he would still go. One of the great quotes from church history. It was the dinner hour, but the moment when the sentinel stationed in the cathedral steeple told the signal, everybody ran into the street to see the monk. 
Thus was Luther in Worms. Two thousand persons accompanied him through the streets. There was a rush to meet him. The crowd was increasing every moment and was much larger than when the emperor made his entry. Suddenly, relates the historian, a man clad in a singular dress and carrying a large cross before him, as is usual at funerals, breaks off from the crowd and advances towards Luther, and then in a loud voice and with the plaintive cadence which is used in saying mass for the repose of the souls of the dead, chants the following stanzas, as if he had been determined that the very dead should hear them. Uh, and there's a, a Latin thing here, Adventisti o rabilis, quum expectabamus in tenebris. Well, I don't know what that means. Luther's arrival is celebrated by requiem. If the story is true, it was the court fool of one of the Dukes of Bavaria who gave Luther one of those warnings, remarkable at once for wisdom and irony, of which so many instances are furnished by these individuals. So in other words, he came to declare that Luther was coming to his funeral, but he was the court fool. <clears throat> but the clamour of the multitude soon drowned the de profundis of the cross-bearer. The train could scarcely proceed through the moving mass. At length the imperial herald stopped before the hotel of the Knights of Rhodes. Here lodged two of the elector's councillors, Frederick of Thun and Philip of Felitish, Felich, sorry, Felich, as well as the Marshal of the Empire, Ulrich of Pappenheim. Luther got out of his carriage and on alighting said, The Lord will be my defence. I entered Worms, as he said he afterwards, in a covered carriage in my frock, that's his monk's garment. Everybody ran into the street to see Friar Martin. The news of his arrival filled the Elector of Saxony and Aleander with alarm. The young and elegant Archbishop Albert, who held a mean between these two, those two parties, was amazed at Luther's boldness. Had I not had more courage than he, said Luther, it is true I never should have been seen in Worms. <coughs> Charles V immediately assembled his council. The councillors, in the emperor's confidence, repaired in haste to the palace, for they too were in dismay. Luther is arrived, said Charles. What must be done? He hoped he would never show up. Modo, Bishop of Palermo and Chancellor of Flanders, if we are to receive Luther's own statement, replied, We have long consulted on this subject. Let your imperial majesty speedily get rid of this man. Did not Sigismund cause John Huss to be burnt? There is no obligation either to give or observe a safe conduct to a heretic. No, said Charles, what has been promised must be performed. There was nothing for it, therefore, but to make the reformer appear, before the diet, of course. <coughs> While the councils of the great were thus agitated on the subject of Luther, there were many men in Worms who rejoiced that they were able at length to behold this illustrious servant of God, in the first rank among them was Capito, chaplain and counsellor to the Archbishop of Mentz. I think he's Capito, perhaps, of Mentz. This remarkable man, who a short time before had preached the gospel in Switzerland with great freedom, thought it due to the place which he then occupied to pursue a course which exposed him to a charge of cowardice from the evangelists and of dissimulation from the Romans. He had, however, preached the doctrine of faith clearly at Mentz, and on his departure had succeeded in supplying his place by a young preacher full of zeal named Hedio. In this town, the ancient see of the primate of the German church, the word of God was not bound. The gospel was eagerly listened to. In vain did the monks strive to preach the gospel 
after their own way and employ all the means in their power in order to arrest the general impulse. They had no success. But Capito, even while he preached the new doctrine, laboured to continue in friendship with those who persecuted it. He flattered himself with others of the same sentiments that he would thus be of great utility to the church. To hear them talk, it might have been supposed that, if Luther was not burned, if all the Lutherans were not excommunicated, it was owing entirely to Capito's influence over the Archbishop Albert. Cochleus, Dean of Frankfurt, arriving at Worms almost at the same time with Luther, immediately waited upon Capito, who, being apparently at least on very good terms with Aleander, introduced Cochleus to him, thus serving as a connecting link between the two greatest enemies of the Reformer. Capito doubtless thought that he would do great service to the cause of Christ by all this management, but it cannot be said that any good resulted from it. The event almost always belies these calculations of human wisdom and proves that a decided course, while it is the most frank, is also the most wise. Meanwhile, the crowd continued around the Hotel of Rhodes, at which Luther had alighted. Some looked upon him as a prodigy of wisdom, and others as a monster of iniquity. The whole town wished to see him. The first hours were left to him to recover from his fatigue and converse with his most intimate friends. But as soon as evening came, counts, barons, knights, gentlemen, ecclesiastics and citizens flocked in upon him. All, even his greatest enemies, were struck with the bold step he had taken. The joy which appeared to animate him, the power of his eloquence and the lofty elevation and enthusiasm which made the influence of this simple monk almost irresistible. Many attributed this grandeur to something within him partaking of the divine, while the friends of the Pope loudly declared that he was possessed with a devil. Call followed call, and the crowd of curious visitors kept Luther standing to a late period of the night. The next morning, Friday the 17th of April, Ulrich of Pappenheim, hereditary marshal of the empire, summoned him to appear at four o'clock in the afternoon, in the presence of his imperial majesty and the states of the empire. Luther received the summons with profound respect. Thus everything is fixed, and Luther is going to appear for Jesus Christ before the most august assembly in the world. He was not without encouragement. The ardent knight Ulrich von Hutten was then in the castle of Ebenburg, not being able to appear at Worms, for Leo X had asked Charles to send him to Rome bound hand and foot. He desired to stretch out a friendly hand to Luther, and on the same day, 17th of April, wrote to him, borrowing the words of the King of Israel, The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble, the King of Israel. The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble, the name of... The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice. Psalm 20. O dearly beloved Luther, my respected father, fear not and be strong. This is Ulrich of Hutton. The counsel of the wicked has beset you. They have opened their mouths upon you like roaring lions. But the Lord will rise up against the wicked and scatter them. That's exactly what happened. Fight then valiantly for Christ. As for me, I also will fight boldly. Would to God I were permitted to see the wrinkling of their brows. But the Lord will cleanse his vine, which the wild boar of the forest has laid waste. May Christ preserve you. Bucer did what Hutton was unable to do. He came from Eppenburg to Worms and remained the whole time beside his friend. 
I was very brave. We need people to stand up and support evangelists and encourage them and stick with them. But it takes courage to do that. It's easier just to leave people in the heat of battle to perish. Four o'clock, having struck, the Marshal of the Empire presented himself. It was necessary to set out, and Luther made ready. He was moved at the thought of the August Congress, Congress, August Congress, before which he was going to appear. The Herald walked first, after him the Marshal, and last the Reformer. The multitude thronging the streets was still more numerous than on the previous evening. It was impossible to get on. It was in vain to cry, give place. The crowd increased. At length, the herald, seeing the impossibility of reaching the town hall, caused some private houses to be opened, opened and conducted Luther through gardens and secret passages to the place of meeting. The people, perceiving this, rushed into the houses on the steps of the monk of Wittenberg, or placed themselves at the windows which looked into the gardens, while great numbers of persons got up on the roofs, the tops of the houses, the pavement, every place above and below was covered with spectators. Arrived at length at the town, Luther and those who accompanied him were again unable, because of the crowd, to reach the door. Give way, give way, No, not one stirred. At last the imperial soldiers forced a passage for Luther. The people rushed forward to get in after him, but the soldiers kept them back with their halberds. Spiky things. Luther got into the interior of the building, which was completely filled with people. As well as in the antechambers, as at the windows, there were more than 5,000 spectators. German, Italian, Spanish, etc. Luther advanced with difficulty. As he was at length approaching the door, which was to bring him in the presence of his judges, he met a valiant knight the celebrated General George of Frunsberg, who four years afterwards, at the head of the German Landsquenets, couched his lance on the field of Pavia, and bearing down upon the left wing of the French army, drove it into the Tessino, and in a great measure decided the captivity of the King of France. The old general, seeing Luther passed, clapped him on the shoulder, and shaking his head, whitened in battle, kindly said to him, Poor monk, poor monk, you have before you a march and an affair, the like to which neither I nor a great many captains have ever seen in the bloodiest of our battles. But if your cause is just and you have full confidence in it, advance in the name of God and fear nothing. God will not forsake you. A beautiful homage borne by a warlike courage to courage of intellect. It is the saying of a king... He that ruleth his spirit is greater than he that taketh a city. Proverbs 16, verse 32. At length, the doors of the hall being opened, Luther entered, and many persons, not belonging to the Diet, made their way in along with him. Never had a man appeared before an assembly so august. The Emperor, Charles V, whose dominions embraced the old and the new world, his brother, the Archduke Ferdinand, six electors of the Empire, whose descendants are now almost all wearing the crown of kings, 24 dukes, the greater part of them reigning over territories of greater or less extent, and among whom are some bearing a name which will afterwards become formidable to the Reformation, the Duke of Alva and his two sons, <coughs> eight margraves, 30 archbishops, bishops or prelates, seven ambassadors, among them those of the kings of France and England. I think my voice is a bit croaky from the open air yesterday. 
the deputies of ten free towns, a great number of princes, counts and sovereign barons, the nuncios of the Pope. In all, 204 personages, such was the court before which Martin Luther appeared. This appearance was in itself a signal victory gained over the papacy. The Pope had condemned the man, yet here he stood before a tribunal which thus far placed itself above the Pope. The Pope had put him under his ban, debarring him from all human society, and yet here he was convened in honourable terms and admitted before the most august assembly in the world. The Pope had ordered that his mouth should be forever mute, and he was going to open it before an audience of thousands assembled from the remotest quarters of Christendom. An immense revolution had thus been accomplished by the instrumentality of Luther. Rome was descending from her throne, descending at the bidding of a monk. Some of the princes, seeing the humble son of the miner of Mansfield, disconcerted in the presence of the assembly of kings, kindly approached him, and one of them said, Fear not them who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Another added, When you will be brought before kings, it is not you that speak, but the spirit of your father that speaketh in you. Thus the reformer was consoled in the very words of his master, by the instrumentality of the rulers of the world. During this time, the guards were making way for Luther, who advanced till he came in front of the throne of Charles V. <clears throat> the sight of the august assembly seemed for a moment to dazzle and overawe him. All eyes were fixed upon him. The agitation gradually calmed down into perfect silence. "'Don't speak before you are asked,' said the marshal of the inquirer to him, and withdrew. After a moment of solemn stillness, John of Eck, the Chancellor of the Archbishop of Treves, a friend of Aleander, and who must not be confounded with the theologian of the same name, rose up and said in a distinct and audible voice, first in Latin and then in German, Martin Luther, his sacred and invincible imperial majesty, has cited you before his throne by the advice and counsel of the states of the Holy Roman Empire in order to call upon you to answer these two questions. <clears throat> First, do you admit that these books were composed by you? At the same time, the imperial orator pointed to about 20 books lying on the table in the middle of the hall in front of Luther. I did not exactly know how they had procured them, says Luther, in relating the circumstance. It was Aleander who had taken the trouble. Secondly, continued the Chancellor, do you mean to retract these books and their contents, or do you persist in the things which you have advanced in them? Luther, without hesitation, was going to reply in the affirmative to the former question, when his counsel, Jerome Scherf, hastily interfering, called out, read the titles of the books. The Chancellor, going up to the table, read the titles, a list containing s several devotional works not relating to controversy. After the enumeration, Luther said first in Latin, and then in German, Most gracious emperor, gracious princes and lords, his imperial majesty asked me two questions. As to the first, I acknowledge that the books which have been named are mine. I cannot deny them. As to the second, considering that it is a question which concerns faith and the salvation of souls, a question in which the word of God is interested, in other words, the greatest and most precious treasure either in heaven or on earth, I should act imprudently were I to answer without reflection. I might say less than the occasion requires, or more than the truth demands, and thus incur the guilt which our Saviour denounced when he said, Whoso shall deny me before men, him will I deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
Wherefore I pray your imperial majesty with all submission to give me time that I may answer without offence to the word of God. This reply, far from countenancing the idea that there was any hesitation in Luther, was worthy of the reformer and the assembly, and became him to show calmness and circumspection in so grave a matter, and to refrain on this solemn moment from everything that might seem to indicate passion or levity. Moreover, by taking a suitable time, he would thereby the better prove the immovable firmness of his resolution. History shows us many men who, by a word uttered too hastily, brought great calamities on themselves and on the world. Luther curbs his natural, impetuous character, restrains a tongue always ready to give utterance, is silent when all the feelings of his heart are longing to embody themselves in words. This self-restraint, this calmness, so extraordinary in such a man, increased his power a hundredfold, and put him into a position to answer afterwards with a wisdom, power and dignity which will disappoint the expectation of his enemies and confound their pride and malice. Nevertheless, as he had spoken in a respectful and somewhat subdued tone, several thought he was hesitating and even afraid. A ray of hope gleamed into the souls of the partisans of Rome. Charles, impatient to know the man whose words shook the empire, had never taken his eye off him. <clears throat> now, turning towards one of his courtiers, he said with disdain, Assuredly, that is not the man who would ever make me turn heretic. Then, rising up, the young emperor withdrew with his ministers to the council chamber. The electors with the princes were closeted in another, and the deputies of the free towns in a third. The diet, when it again met, agreed to grant Luther's request. It was a great mistake in men under the influence of passion, Martin Luther said, that the Chancellor of Treves, his Imperial Majesty, in accordance with the goodness which is natural to him, is pleased to grant you another day, but on condition that you give your reply verbally and not in writing. Then the Imperial Herald advanced and reconducted Luther to his hotel. Menaces and cheers succeeded each other as he passed along. Most unfavourable reports were circulated among Luther's friends. The Diet is dissatisfied, said they. The envoys of the Pope triumph. The Reformer will be sacrificed. <coughs> Men's passions grew hot. Several gentlemen hastened to Luther's lodgings. Doctor, asked they in deep emotion, how does the matter stand? It is confidently said that they mean to burn you. That won't be, continued they, or they shall pay for it with their lives. And that would have been the result, said Luther twenty years later, as Eiselben, when quoting these expressions. On the other hand, Luther's enemies were quite elated. He has asked for time, said they. He will retract. When at a distance he spoke arrogantly, but now his courage fails him. He is vanquished. Luther, perhaps, was the only tranquil person in Worms. A few moments after... <laughs> sounds like it sounds like the whole town was in an uproar. Some crying one thing and others crying another. Luther, perhaps, was the only tranquil person in Worms. A few moments after his return from the Diet, he wrote to the Imperial Councillor Caspianus, I write to you from the midst of tumult, meaning probably the noise of the crowd outside his, outside his hotel. <clears throat> I have, within this hour, appeared before the Emperor and his brother. I have acknowledged the authorship and declared that tomorrow I will give my answer concerning retractation. By the help of Jesus Christ, not one iota of all my works will I retract. <clears throat> 
The excitement of the people and of the foreign troops increased every hour. While parties were proceeding calmly to the business of the diet, others were coming to bows in the streets. The Spanish soldiers, proud and merciless, gave offence by their insolence to the burghers of the town. One of these satellites of Charles, finding in a bookseller's shop the papal bull with a com commentary on it by Hutton, took and tore it to pieces and then trampled the fragments under his feet. Others, having discovered several copies of Luther's Captivity of Babylon, carried them off and tore them. The people indignant rushed upon the soldiers and obliged them to take flight. On another occasion, a Spanish horseman with drawn sword was seen in one of the principal streets of Worms in pursuit of a German who was fleeing before him while the people durst not interfere. Some politicians thought they had discovered a method of saving Luther. Recant your errors in doctrine, said they to him, but persist in all you have said against the Pope and his court, and you are safe. Aleander shuddered at this advice. But Luther, immovable in his purpose, declared that he set little value on, on a political reform, if not founded on faith. The 18th of April, having arrived, Glapio, the Chancellor Eck and Aleander met at an early hour by order of Charles V to fix the course of procedure in regard to Luther. Luther had been for a moment overawed on the evening before when he had to appear before so august an assembly. His heart had been agitated at the sight of so many princes before whom great kingdoms humbly bent the knee. The thought that he was going to refuse obedience to men whom God had invested with sovereign power gave him deep concern, and he felt the necessity of seeking strength from a higher source. He who attacked by the enemy holds the shield of faith, said he one day, is like Perseus holding the head of the Gorgon, on which he, whoever looked that moment died. So ought we to hold up the Son of God against the snares of the devil. <coughs> so, on this morning of the 18th of April, he had moments of trouble when the face of God was hid from him. His faith becomes faint. His enemies seem to multiply before him. His imagination is overpowered. His soul is like a ship tossed by a violent tempest, now plunged to the depths of the sea and again mounting up towards heaven. At this hour of bitter sorrow, when he drinks the cup of Christ, he feels, as it were, in a garden of Gethsemane. He turns his face to the ground and sends forth broken cries, cries which we cannot comprehend unless we figure to ourselves the depth of the agony from which they ascended up to God. God Almighty, God Eternal, how terrible is the world, how it opens its mouth to swallow me up, and how defective my confidence in thee. How weak the flesh, how powerful Satan. If I must put my hope in that which the world calls powerful, I am undone. The knell is struck and judgment is pronounced. O oh God, O oh God, O oh thou my God, assist me against all the wisdom of the world. Do it, thou must do it, thou alone. For it is not my work, but thine. I have nothing to do here. I have nothing to do contending thus with the mighty of the world. I too would like to spend tranquil and happy days, but the cause is thine, and it is just and everlasting. O Lord, be my help, faithful God, immutable God. I trust not in any man, that were vain. All that is of man vacillates, all that comes of man gives way. O God, O God, dost thou not hear, my God? Art thou dead? No, thou canst not die. Thou only hidest thyself. Thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it. 
Act then, O God, stand by my side for the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who is my defence, my buckler, and my fortress. After a moment of silence and wrestling, he continues thus, Lord, where standest thou? O my God, where art thou? Come, come, I am ready, I am ready to give up my life for thy truth, patient as a lamb, for the cause is just and it is thine. I will not break off from thee, either now or through eternity. And though the world should be filled with devils, though my body, which however is the work of thy hands, should bite the dust, be racked on the wheel, cut in pieces, ground to powder, my soul is thine. Yes, thy word is my pledge. My soul belongs to thee and will be eternally near thee. Amen. O God, help me. Amen. This prayer explains Luther and the Reformation. History here lifts the veil of the sanctuary and shows us the secret place where strength and courage were imparted to this humble man, who was the instrument of God in emancipating the soul and the thoughts of men and beginning a new era. Luther and the Reformation are here seen in actual operation. We perceive their most secret springs. We discover where their power lay. This meditation by one who is sacrificing himself to the cause of truth is found among the collection of pieces relating to Luther's appearance at Worms under the number 16 among safe conducts and other documents of a similar description. Some of his friends doubtless extended it and so have preserved it to us. In my opinion, it is one of the finest documents on record. Luther, after he had thus prayed, found that peace of mind which, without which no man can do anything great. He read the word of God, he glanced over his writings, and endeavoured to put his reply into proper shape. The thought that he was going to bear testimony to Jesus Christ and his word in the presence of the emperor and the empire filled his heart with joy. The moment of appearance was drawing near. He went up with emotion to the sacred volume, <clears throat> which was lying open on his table, put his left hand upon it, and lifting his right hand toward heaven, swore to remain faithful to the gospel, and to confess his faith freely, should he even seal his confession with his blood. After doing so, he felt still more at peace. At four o'clock, the herald presented himself and conducted him to the place where the diet sat. The general curiosity had increased, for the reply was certain to be decisive. The diet being engaged, Luther was obliged to wait in the court in the middle of an immense crowd, who moved to and fro like a troubled sea, and pressed the reformer with its waves. <clears throat> the doctor spent two long hours amid this gazing multitude. I was not used, says he, to all these doings and all this noise. It would have been a sad preparation for an ordinary man, but Luther was with God. His eye was serene, his features unruffled. The Eternal had placed him upon a rock. Night began to fall, and the lamps were lighted in the hall of the Diet. Their glare passed through the ancient windows and shone into the court. Everything assumed a solemn aspect. At last the doctor was introduced. Many persons entered with him, for there was an eager desire to hear his answer. All minds were on the stretch, waiting impatiently for the decisive moment which now approached. Stupendous moment in the history of the world. <clears throat> this time Luther was free, calm, self-possessed, and showed not the least appearance of being under constraint. Prayer had produced its fruits. The princes, having taken their seats, 
not without difficulty, for their places were almost invaded, and the monk of Wittenberg, again standing in front of Charles V, the Chancellor of the Elector of Treves, rose up and said, Martin Luther, you yesterday asked a delay which is now expired. Assuredly, it might have been denied you, since everyone ought to be sufficiently instructed in matters of faith to be able always to render an account of it to whosoever asks. You, above all, so great and able a doctor of the Holy Scripture. Now then, reply to the question of His Majesty, who has treated you with so much mildness. Do you mean to defend your books out and out, or do you mean to retract some part of them? These words, which the Chancellor had spoken in Latin, he, Latin, he repeated in German. Then, Martin Lu- then Dr. Martin Luther, says, say the Acts of Worms, replied in the most humble and submissive manner. He did not raise his voice, he spoke not with violence, but with candour, meekness, suitableness and modesty, and yet with great joy and Christian firmness. Most serene emperor, illustrious princes, gracious lords, said Luther, turning his eyes on Charles and the assembly, I this day appear humbly before you, according to the order which was given to me yesterday, and by the mercies of God I employ your majesty and august highnesses to listen kindly to the defence of a cause which I am assured is righteous and true. If from ignorance I am wanting in the usages and forms of courts, pardon me, for I was not brought up in the palaces of kings, but in the obscurity of a cloister. Yesterday, two questions were asked me on the part of His Imperial Majesty. The first, if I was the author of the books whose titles were read. The second, if I was willing to recall or to defend the doctrine which I have taught in them. I answered the first question, and I adhere to my answer. As to the second, I have composed books on very different subjects. In some I treat of faith and good works in a manner so pure, simple and Christian that my enemies, even far from finding anything to censor, confess that these writings are useful and worthy of being read by the godly. The papal bull, how severe soever it may be, acknowledges this. Were I then to retract these, what should I do? Wretch! I should be alone among men, abandoned truths, abandoning truths which the unanimous voice of my friends and enemies approves, and opposing what the whole world glories in confessing. In the second place, I have composed books against the papacy, books in which I have attacked those who, by their false doctrine, their bad life and scandalous example, desolate the Christian world and destroy both body and soul. Is not the fact proved by the complaints of all who fear God? Is it not evident that the human laws and doctrines of the popes entangle, torture, martyr the consciences of the faithful, while the claimant and never-ending extortions of Rome engulf the wealth and riches of Christendom, and particularly of this illustrious kingdom? Were I to retract what I have written on this subject, what should I do? What but fortify that tyranny and open a still wider door for these many and great iniquities? Then, breaking forth with more fury than ever, these arrogant men would be seen increasing, usurping, raging more and more, and the yoke which weighs upon the Christian people would, by my retractation, not only be rendered more severe, but would become, so to speak, more legitimate. For by this very retraction it would have received the confirmation of your most serene majesty and of all the states of the Holy Empire. Good God, I should thus be, as it were, an infamous cloak, destined to hide and cover all sorts of malice and tyranny. 
Thirdly and lastly, I have written books against private individuals who wish to defend Roman tyranny and to destroy the faith. I confess frankly that I have perhaps attacked them with more violence than became my ecclesiastical profession. I do not regard myself as a saint, but no more can I retract these books, because by doing so I should sanction the impiety of my opponents and give them occasion to oppress the people of God with still greater cruelty. Still, I am a mere man and not God, and I will defend myself as Jesus Christ did. He said, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. John 18.23 How much more should I, who am but dust and ashes, and so apt to err, desire everyone to state what he can against my doctrine? Wherefore, I implore you, by the mercies of God, you, most serene emperor, and you, most illustrious princes, and all others of high or low degree, to prove to me, by the writings of the prophets and the apostles, that I am mistaken. As soon as this shall have been proved, I will forthwith retract all my errors, and be the first to seize my writings and cast them into the flames. What I have just said shows clearly, I think, that I have well considered and weighed the dangers to which I expose myself. But far from being alarmed, it gives me great joy to see that the gospel is now, as in former times, a cause of trouble and discord. This is the characteristic and the destiny of the word of God. I came not to send peace, but a sword, said Jesus Christ, Matthew 10.34. God is wonderful and terrible in working. Let us beware, while pretending to put a stop to discord, that we do not persecute the holy word of God and bring in upon ourselves a frightful deluge of insurmountable dangers, present disasters and eternal destruction. Let us beware that the reign of this young and noble prince, the Emperor Charles, on whom, under God, we build such high hopes, do not only begin but also continue and end under the most fatal... auspices. <clears throat> I might cite examples taken from the oracles of God. Continues Luther speaking in the presence of the greatest monarch in the world with the noblest courage. I might remind you of the pharaohs, the kings of Babylon and of Israel who never laboured more effectually for their ruin than when by councils, apparently very wise, they thought they were establishing their empire. God removeth the mountains and they know not. Job 9 verse 5. If I speak thus, it is not because I think such great princes have need of my counsels, but because I wish to restore to Germany what she has a right to expect from her children. Thus, commending myself to your august majesty and your serene highnesses, I humbly supplicate you not to allow the hatred of my enemies to bring down upon me an indignation which I have not deserved. Luther had spoken these words in German modestly, but also with much warmth and firmness. He was ordered to repeat them in Latin. The emperor had no liking for German. The imposing assembly which surrounded the reformer, the noise and excitement had fatigued him. I was covered with perspiration, says he, heated by the crowd standing in the midst of the princes. Frederick de Thun, confidential counsellor of the Elector of Saxony, stationed by his master's order behind the reformer to take care that he was not taken by surprise or overborne, seeing the condition of the poor monk, said to him, if you cannot repeat your address, that will do, doctor. But Luther, having paused a moment to take breath, resumed and pronounced his address in Latin with the same vigours as at first. This pleased the elector Frederick exceedingly, relates the reformer. 
As soon as he had ceased, the Chancellor of Treves, the orator of the Diet, said to him indignantly, You have not answered the question which was put to you. You are not here to throw doubt on what has been decided by councils. You are asked to give a clear and definite reply. Will you or will you not retract? Luther then replied without hesitation, Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness call upon me for a simple, clear and definite answer, I will give it. And it is this. I cannot subject my faith either to the Pope or to the councils because it is clear as day that they have often fallen into error and even into self great self-contradiction. If then I am not disproved by passages of scripture or by clear arguments, if I am not convinced by the very passages which I have quoted and so bound in conscience to submit to the word of God, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it is not safe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Then looking around on the assembly before which he was standing and which held his life in its hands, here I stand, says he, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Thus Luther, constrained to obey his faith, led by his conscience to death, impelled by the noblest necessity, the slave of what he believes, but in this slavery supremely free, like to ship to the ship tossed by a fearful tempest, which in order to save something more precious than itself, is voluntarily allowed to dash itself to pieces against a rock, pronounces these sublime words which have not lost their thrilling effect after the lapse of three centuries, Torbinier says, it's now five centuries. Thus speaks a monk before the emperor and the magnates of the empire and this poor and feeble individual standing alone, but leaning on the grace of the Most High seems greater and stronger than them all. His word has a power against which all these mighty men can do nothing. The empire and the church on the one side, the obscure individual on the other, have been confronted. God has assembled these kings and prelates that he might publicly bring their wisdom to naught. They have lost the battle, and the consequences of their defeat will be felt in all nations and during all future ages. The assembly were amazed. Several princes could scarcely conceal their admiration. The emperor, changing his first impression, exclaimed, the monk speaks with an intrepid heart and immovable courage. The Spaniards and Italians alone felt disconcerted and soon began to deride a magnanimity which they could not appreciate. After the Diet had recovered from the impression produced by the address, the Chancellor resumed, If you do not retract, the Emperor and the States of the Empire will consider what course they must adopt towards an obstinate heretic. <clears throat> At these words, Luther's friends trembled, but the monk again said, God help me, for I can retract nothing. Luther then withdraws, and the princes deliberate. Everyone felt that the moment formed a crisis in Christendom. The yea or, absolutely, the yea or nay of this monk was destined perhaps for ages to determine the condition of the church and the world. That's true. It was wished to frighten him, but the effect had been to place him on a pedestal in the presence of the nation. It was meant to give more publicity to his defeat, and all that had been done was to extend his victory. The partisans of Rome could not submit to bear the humiliation. Luther was recalled, and the orator thus addressed him, Martin, you have not spoken with the modesty which became your office. The distinction you have made between your books was useless, for if you retract those which contain errors, the empire will not allow the others to be burnt. It is extravagant to insist on being refuted from scripture when you revive heresies which were condemned by the Universal Council of Constance. 
The emperor therefore orders you to say simply, do you mean to maintain what you have advanced, or do you mean to retract any part of it, yes or no? I have no other answer than that which I have already given, replied Luther calmly. He was now understood. Firm as a rock, all the billows of human power had dashed against him in vain. The vigour of his eloquence, his intrepid countenance, the flashing of his eye, the immovable firmness imprinted in bold lineaments on his German features, had produced the deepest impression on this illustrious assembly. There was no longer any hope. Spaniards, Belgians and even Romans were mute. The monk was victorious over earthly grandeur. He had negatived the church and the empire. Charles rose up and all the assembly with him. The Diet will meet tomorrow morning to hear the Emperor's decision, said the Chancellor with a loud voice.